This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The state of North Carolina has been an educational leader ever since the days of Governor James Hunt, who served as governor from 1977 to 85, and then again from 93 to 2001, or that's a, that's a total of 16 years. And, and he had a huge impact on education in North Carolina. He promoted major fiscal investments in the schools. He introduced preschool education. He promoted excellence in teaching and school accountability. And he's left North Carolina with a great legacy, one of the finest of our state educational systems. So it's not surprising that North Carolina's Department of Public Instruction, which has produced a terrific data collection system for, that's valuable to scholars across the country, it's not surprising that it's this department that's released the most comprehensive analysis of the impact of the COVID pandemic that we have yet seen. Uh, we have now for the first time a pretty good picture of just what's happening in America across the country, because if it's true in North Carolina, it's probably true everywhere. So I'm very pleased to have with me today, Michael Marr, the executive director of the Office of Learning Recovery and Acceleration at the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. I'm very pleased to have him with me here on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Michael, for joining me. Yes, absolutely. So you've prepared a comprehensive, sophisticated report on the state of education. And I, I've, I'm impressed by the fact that the losses that you document are across the board for just about all groups and, and all students. So, so do you see that as sort of the key finding that emerges from your report? Yes. Yeah, so this has been some nine months of work. And I, I do want to acknowledge that North Carolina the Department of Public Instruction has a longstanding relationship with SAS and the EVOS team in particular. And so we worked with, with the EVOS team on this report. Can you tell uh, our to, learners what all these initials mean? Sure. SAS is a, is the, is a uh, software company here in, in Raleigh, in uh, Cary, North Carolina. So um, I don't know that the, that the acronym has a, I'm not sure what the acronym stands for. I think we just all know it as SAS. Um, okay. But SAS runs the EVOS uh, model for North Carolina. And so we've had a long partnership with them. And so we engaged with their EVOS team uh, to develop this report. And it, it, like I said, it was about nine months of work. And really what we did was we looked at um, student performance, student growth, and developed a, a prediction model to look at uh, had students had a normal year of, year of schooling, there was a prediction as to what or a projection as to where they would have essentially scored. And we compared that to the actual performance of students. And then, as you mentioned, we noted that there were significant negative impacts for all students across all grades, uh, almost every subject. So with the exception of English, two at the high school level. Um, and, and certainly we anticipated uh, that there would be negative impacts. I think what we weren't perhaps ready for was the magnitude of the impact, particularly in middle grades mathematics, uh, which was especially large. Well, um, this is, uh, I think, exactly how I read the report too. It's, it's pretty big. Uh, uh, the magnitude is larger than what some of the early reports coming from other sources uh, might have led one to uh, expect. And is there any way you can characterize this? Let's start with standard deviations. What, what's the, 
and then we can talk about what standard deviations mean, but what is the size of the impact in standard deviations for all subjects, for all students across the board? Yeah, so I don't have them in standard deviation. We do have them in effect size. Well, that's the same, yeah. Yeah, and so our effect sizes range from a negative, just over kind of a negative 0.05 to a negative 0.8. And let me see, so if I, so if I pull that, so I get I get 0.26 when I when I looked in, in the details of your report back there it's, it's a little bit buried back there but I got a negative about 0.026 which in standard deviation I think of as about one year's worth of schooling um, am I right to say there's almost a full year's learning loss between 2019 and 2021 over that two-year period students learned about a year less than you would have expected they would have learned during that period of time yeah so so we actually have started this work we're, we're actually pretty close to having the month's conversion of these effect sizes and it's proven to be far more challenging than we thought it was initially going to be um, because of the way the, the growth models built you've got uh, expected growth by kind of demographic subgroup and by individual student, and then trying to calculate that back to this kind of months conversion. Um, you know, we do tend to think that some of these larger magnitudes, like the eighth grade math, is going to be somewhere around 12 to 14 months over that two year period. Yeah, so I may not be dead on here, and this may be a bit of an overestimate. Now, so when you say expected, how did, how did, how did you calculate that? that expected. Yeah, so so one of the the you know unique pieces in North Carolina is that we do have a single student information system for the entire state. So we have data in the same system for every student and all of that data is captured uh, by student by tested subject throughout their career. And so what our partners at SAS were able to do was to take each individual student develop a predicted score based on all of the assessments that student has ever taken in their career as a student here in North Carolina. Uh, and then they compared that to kind of the, the predicted, so that becomes their predicted growth. We then had actual student data from 2021 when we resumed annual testing uh, and North Carolina's participation rate was still about 93%. So, so that sample is, is large enough to, to do this work. Um, but essentially we built the model based on uh, all of those tests that were available. So we have about 1.4 million students. Um, so it, it is in essence, a population study of North Carolina. So what's amazing about this, and this is what I think is the key to your study is that it's your predicted model is based on what that specific child had done in the past. I suppose it's a little bit better for kids who are in sixth and seventh and eighth grade than it is for kids who are in second grade or third grade. So for the older kids, we may be getting somewhat more accurate information than for the little kids for whom these predicted models are a little bit yeah. more uncertain. I think what you'll notice in the report is, is we did not report math grades three and four. And the reason for that is exactly as you said, we, we had a limited number of tests available for those students and couldn't get a prediction that was um, kind of within the bounds of what we were looking for. And so we did exclude those from the report. Um, you know, we, we do feel confident from the kind of third grade on in reading and then fifth grade on in math, but, but yeah, you're, you're right there. 
Well, the learning losses are greater in math than in reading. Uh, and quite a big difference, right? About, I would say for, for reading, it was somewhere between point oh, point 0.1 and point 0.2 standard deviations. And for math, you know, more like 4.4 4 to 0.5 standard deviations. Is, so, so that's quite a bit of a difference there, I think. Uh, Yes, yeah, we saw it the same way. And, and so this is, you know, one of the reasons we're actually will be launching a, a math intervention this coming fall using some of our state, uh, some of our federal aid money, um, specifically targeted at that at those middle grades, math programs. So you so the with, you know, problem with math is you, you can't skip fractions and march on, you've got to teach fractions. So how, how are you going to do this? How are you going to make up the time? Because every time you try to make up the time for one thing, you get, you're losing it on something else. So, Yes. So, so what we've tried to do here is essentially, you know, North Carolina has taken its federal money. And so we've got kind of the ESSER two and ESSER three funds that have come into the state. And we've built out kind of sub, both summer and then after school interventions. And then we, of course, have districts that are running their own interventions. But in addition to that, we're actually going to be um, funding a $9 million competency-based education platform in our state. And so the idea then is to provide some kind of real-time actionable data to teachers using the CBE platform uh, so we can better align you know, students by so, so student understanding by standard. Uh, and then get better at kind of remediating where students need to be remediated, but also pursuing more acceleration, particularly in things like math. Uh, in addition to some of the other interventions, like we're spending $13.5 million on, on tutoring programs. And so this idea of being able to target our tutoring specifically to subjects uh, and standards that students need help with. Uh, so so as, opposed to, as opposed to taking this broad brush remediation strategy, we want to be far more targeted at what we're trying to do. But this is going to be very demanding for teachers. If you take a fourth grade teacher, a fourth grade teacher sort of says, well, in fourth grade, this is what we do in math. And, and they sort of spot, they sort of assume that's where, where they're supposed to begin. But maybe they need to start it with what kids need to learn in third grade. So how do you communicate that to all the teachers of North Carolina? Yeah, so that's going to be the, that's the real challenge, right, is, is that, you know, it's not, the Department of Public Instruction is not the one that is going to be working on the ground with students. It's going to be teachers, but, it, but it's, also, it's also going to be community partners and, and some third-party groups, um, NGOs and others who, who have kind of come into the state to help alleviate some of this learning loss. So I think it's a combination of classroom-based practice. So, so are we deploying tools for teachers like our CBE platform, but also are we providing these other supports and incentives, uh, including uh, tutoring, after-school programs, weekend programs, and summer schooling? Well, uh, the, getting the data right is the, is the first step, and you've really made a, a huge step forward. Why do you think it's the case that... Uh, the losses are greater in math and in reading. Um, you know, interestingly, like, so when, when we got ready to release this work, we met with uh, experts inside of the department here. So we had folks from Exceptional Children and, and uh, folks who work with English language learners and some of the content experts. And we actually talked about that. And, and I think that some of the consensus was, 
you know, there for online instruction, which the majority of our students were in in the remote environment for uh, nearly 14 months. And so some of the consensus was, well, you have to have a baseline uh, of reading ability in order to, to participate in the online environment. And, and so for students, right, we, we maybe we're not capturing some of the, the loss there in the reading, but math is pretty different. And so we saw both math and science um, scores being severely negatively impacted. So, you know, you know, I, we wonder if it's not just that, that, as you said earlier, right, that like that math builds on each of these kind of fundamental pieces and getting that in an online environment where students may or may not be either fully engaged or fully participating also has an impact. I think inside of the report too, we, we actually looked at and were able to get some school level data around um, remote instruction versus this hybrid instruction versus in-person instruction. And we see, a, we see a difference as well for students who participated in person, right? So, so for the vast majority of students in North Carolina, in-person instruction was superior. And so I think that kind of bears out that difficulty with teaching math uh, in particular in the online environment. Yeah, well, you anticipated my next question, which was, uh, and so how many of the students were in person in North Carolina all year long last year? That they, they just did not have any interruption uh, yeah. at all. It, it's actually a very small percentage. We had um, several schools out in Western North Carolina in the mountains uh, who were full-time. And then I think we had one or two districts on the eastern side, but the, the vast majority and our largest districts were all uh, primarily in this either hybrid or um, or remote environment. We're actually working now. So so this, of course, was our preliminary report. We'll do a final report in December. So we're kind of taking that next step now, trying to dig into the student attendance data uh, to figure out kind of a, a more granular look at the impact of, of remote or virtual instruction. So did you see much difference between the hybrid and the fully remote? Um, other studies are not finding much difference. It's, they, they all find in-person's a lot better than either that hybrid or the remote. Yes, so yeah, I think for us, it's the same. And, and the problem with that data in particular is it's a little bit messy. Um, so, so because the data is taken right at the school level and, and we can't necessarily account for students being marked, present, absent, remote, at every school in the same way, uh, and then it's yeah. A little you weren't bit ready to collect that data, right? And so we, we are, uh, but it's a little harder. So so we're yeah. digging into that a little bit. But I think you're right, right? There clearly is a difference between um, the number of days a student is remote versus the number of days they are in person. When we compare kind of the top and the bottom, uh, there is a pretty significant difference. So we also see uh, differences along ethnic lines and. There were two things that, that stand out. Uh, one is the difference between uh, white students and black students. And we, you know, back in 2018, and you provide this nice, useful comparison to 2018, where we see that in 2018, students were pretty much moving along as expected. And it wasn't that much difference along racial lines, maybe a little difference, but, but all of a sudden now this comes along and you see some big differences. Uh, so you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So honestly, this is, I think what um, one of my colleagues referred to this as, as the biggest gut punch of all was that we did feel like we were making real progress in North Carolina, closing gaps, right. Working towards closing these longstanding gaps. 
And now we see this huge regression and, and unfortunately the gaps have widened once again. So we clearly have a lot of work to do now when we think about um, students who have been disproportionately impacted, specifically uh, students of color. So what do you think is the reason for that? Why was the pandemic such an unfortunate event for uh, minority students? Uh, yeah, this is hard to say, but I think there are a lot of these kind of confounding um, factors, right, that, that go into this. So, for example, you know, some of the harder hit areas in the state were, were are in places where we have larger proportions of African-American students. So you have more of those students attending more time outside of the classroom. So in that remote environment. Um, and then I think certainly if you look at things like the impact of COVID itself on on uh, people of color right there, right, there's some disproportionate impact in terms of the disease itself. So having folks have to remain kind of outside of the, the in-person instruction is, is certainly a contributing factor. Um, so, so I think that's probably part of it is just the number of students who did not attend in person um, has a huge impact. How about the Hispanic population? I, I, I saw they seem to be somewhere in between the black-white uh, divide, but I, I wasn't able to quite get the numbers on that. What do you... Yeah, how, I think it's the... You, are they pretty much like the... Did they suffer as much of a, a loss as the black students or a little less? Yeah, so when I, when I look at the, at the data, it's they... Uh, let's see... I actually pulled it up as well. So they're slightly less impacted, but but I'm I'm not sure that there's like a, like a tangible difference between the two groups. Yeah, and the Asians much less than the white students. They, they yes. they've been scoring remarkably across the country for a decade or two, and. And that shows up again here, right? So yeah, and, and interestingly, we actually collected data on um, proportions of students who were in one of three modes of instruction, and um, and and Asian students actually spent larger proportions of time in the in remote schooling, and still, so so they're kind of the outlier in this whole data set when it comes to that. So it sounds like you remote instruction isn't necessarily a bad thing if. So what is the if about the Asian population? And people say about it, well, they're more likely to be, you know, have a family that's insisting that they study and work hard and maybe get a tutor for them. Do you think there was a lot of family interaction there that helps to uh, uh, mitigate the uh, loss? You know, I think that's probably a great, uh, that's a great question for somebody who's got a, who wants to do a research study. Because I think one of the, when I think about that, one of the challenges is when we look at our data, one of the really surprising graphs, maybe you pick this up, is the negative impact on academically intellectually gifted students. We heard regularly throughout the fall, AIG students will be fine. These kids are self-motivated. They, they had some of the largest declines of any group that we saw. So their performance as compared to their predicted performance, um, unbelievable, the loss there. And, and so I, I think this whole idea of self-motivation or parents or, I don't know, I have a hard time reconciling what I see in the AIG data and what I see in, the, in, in perhaps the, the Asian Pacific Islander data. 
Yeah, well, another way of looking at gifted students could be that they uh, gain a lot from school. They have bring yes. a lot to the table. And so if the table is offering something, they are going to eat it. And so they so your expectations for them were pretty high. And it's going to be harder to live up to the expectations if all of a sudden the food is taken away. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, if you look at their their 2018, they're always they're they're almost by and large uh entirely beyond their growth projection, right? And then and then 2021, they're almost all behind their growth projection. So yeah, I think part of that is true. You, it's there, they, they do school very well. So um, chronically absent, how many of the students, did that percentage increase during the pandemic? Uh, so that I don't have data, I don't have good data on that yet. That's one of the things we're digging into now. And but but you do see particularly large uh, losses, not surprisingly, for this particular group. Yes. Yeah. Um, and um, so now I have a daughter who works with on the issue in in New York uh, with chronically absent. So I'm sort of interested in that thing. And she says they turn into uh, dropouts. And so the question is. What are the enrollment losses that you're seeing? Enrollment losses among uh, high school students nearing the end mm -hmm. of education? Are they, did they get so disengaged they're just disappearing from the landscape? Yeah, this has been a huge question in North Carolina. And, we, and we're actually, uh, we've got several million dollars dedicated to, to both identifying and tracking uh, students that we're, we're essentially calling them stop out students. So they, uh, by and large, when when schools were closed in March of 2020, those students either went into the workforce or did something else, and some of them didn't come back. Um, our early estimates were around one percent of our students were were stopout, uh, and they by and large were at the high school. We didn't see as many in the elementary and middle school, so so predominantly in the high school. Um, some of the work that we're doing, and and I think it's important to note. So, Superintendent Truitt, our our state superintendent. Um, established the Office of Learning Recovery in 2020. It was her vision to create this office. And then she sits it in the middle of her strategic vision, which is really focused on a couple of key areas, including uh, accountability reform. And, and one of the other important things that she's really been pushing is this idea of workforce development as well. And so a number of these students who are kind of quote unquote stopout students have entered the workforce. And so one of the ways that we look at re-engaging those kids is by providing them opportunities to earn workforce credentials. How can we get them prepared for the post-secondary pathway of their choosing? Um, so for some kids, that's college, but for some kids, that's the workforce. And, and we have an obligation to those kids as well. So we have thought about the stop-out kids. Um, how do we get them back? How do we re-engage them? But how do we re-engage them in a way that makes sense for them? So you're uh, seeing some, you know, enrollment declines. Some people say they're going to private schools. Some people say they're going into homeschooling. Uh, where, what do you see? Do you see that there's a change in the kind of education parents are looking for as a result of this? Yeah. So interestingly, in North Carolina specifically, we did see a, a decline in traditional public school enrollment. Um, we saw a slight increase in charter school enrollment 
and then probably a larger actual increase in homeschooling. And so some of that certainly related to the pandemic, uh, probably all of it related to the pandemic to some degree, right? Um, so, so we'll have to see what happens over the next year. I mean, we do anticipate a number of those students who were, who were homeschooled would probably return to in-person instruction once it is full in-person. And, and we are transitioning now to pretty much full in-person instruction in North Carolina uh, once again. You know, some scholars have shown that in other places and in other times, when you have a, a major uh, tragedy that deprives kids from their educational experiences, they never get it back. That when they're adults, their earnings are less than their predecessors. Uh, so are you worried that this is this could be a permanent lost generation that we're uh, uh, witnessing here? Uh, you know, I think that is what drives us in this work, um, right? When, when this office was created, it's the thing that I think about all the time is we've got 1.6 million children in North Carolina who have been severely negatively impacted. And so what do we do? Um, you, you know, their learning trajectory has been disrupted. And when we look at it, you know, as we mentioned earlier, it's somewhere between half a year and a year likely. And so, you know, we're working really hard on identifying specific targeted interventions to try to disrupt that trajectory and get them back on track. Um, certainly, there are students who, you know, uh, to be honest, my own daughter was a high school sophomore when this happened. She spent her junior year remote. She's now a high school senior about to graduate. You can't there's nothing we can do for a high school senior right now other than if, unless we give them some kind of recovery programming because they need to get on track to graduate or, or something like that. So it, it is going to be, it's difficult. I, I tend to be a, sometimes overly optimistic. I, I tend to be an optimistic person. So I, I do feel that the, the work that we're doing certainly matters, but I, but I think if we you know, think about this work very carefully and, and produce the kinds of data that we are, you know, intent on producing and get that in the hands of practitioners that we can make better decisions. So, you know, I, I don't know that we've always had the best available data after other, you know, not necessarily pandemics, but we've had disrupted learning for a long time. North Carolina is not immune to disrupted learning. Unfortunately, I was in the eastern part of the state several weeks ago meeting with superintendents. And one of the comments was, you know, Michael, we've had an entire group of middle school students who have not had a normal middle school year ever. They had a hurricane. They had a second hurricane. They had two years of pandemic. That was their entire middle school. And now we're sending those kids to high school. So that's really what drives me every day is thinking about these kids who've had nothing but disrupted learning. So how do we fix that, right? How do we how do we mediate it in some way? Well, the first step, as I said before, is to document it, and you have done that. And the second step is to think about how can we intervene to uh, to to make up for 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 this tragedy that's happened. So, thank you very much, uh, Michael, for explaining how you are trying to address both these questions in in North Carolina. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, thank you for the time. I have been speaking with Michael Marr. He is the executive director of the Office of Learning Recovery and Acceleration at the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. 
Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.